We're going to be returning to the book of Exodus in chapter 25. If you want to join me in your copy of God's Word, we'll be picking up in Exodus chapter 25. Now, Exodus 25. Now, imagine that we as a congregation uh, didn't, didn't have a church building, never had a church building, even though we did exist as a, a people who had been brought together to worship the Lord. We've been saved, and we had been totally uprooted out of our past lives and where we used to live, and we were all just traveling around together and could really benefit from having a place to go and together to worship the Lord. And then God gives us instructions for building a place where we could meet with him and have fellowship with one another. Now, how interested would you be in knowing about those building instructions? And how eager would you be to be somebody who could contribute to this thing and get the ball rolling? Well, the instructions for building the tabernacle that we're going to read through were of great interest to Israel and Many of them were very eager and willing to contribute. They were given building instructions from Yahweh himself. They were given a pattern from heaven for a tabernacle, a, a meeting place, a dwelling place of God with man. They were given a picture of Eden, how things should be and will be someday. They were given a pattern of heaven for all this accompanying furniture in the tabernacle, not merely for aesthetic value, but primarily to teach truth throughout the ages. Tabernacle building and worship instructions were not a place for people to just speed up their Bible reading and to get to something more interesting. But it was a place to consider what kind of worship does God want? What is he like? How does his salvation work, and how can we be in remembrance of it and teach other people about it? How can sinful man be reconciled to holy God? What does he want from our lives, and how do we meet with him and enjoy this relationship with the God who has saved us and brought us out into this new life in him? Exodus chapter 25 begins with willing worshipers who wanted to contribute to make a sanctuary for God so that he would dwell with them. That's what we begin to read about here in Exodus 25, if you want to join me there. Exodus 25, verse 1. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak with the sons of Israel, so that they take a contribution for me. From every man whose heart is willing, you shall take my contribution. And this is the contribution which you shall take from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lining, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I am going to show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just 
so you shall make it. The tabernacle that we're going to be learning about here is about worship and relationship. It's about worshiping the God in whom you're in relationship with. And you see what God wanted was voluntary heart relationship. Uh, these weren't people who were coerced into doing this, but uh, these were of the people whose heart was willing to contribute so that they would have the benefit of God dwelling among his people. And the pattern for the tabernacle and the furniture here matters immensely because it's all meant to give instruction about truth, about God and his salvation. There's no detail in any of this that is frivolous. The, the tabernacle was an exact and precise teaching tool. It's like flannel graph in Sunday school, but better. It's like the VBS set and the skit, but better. It's a model of divine truth. It's a pattern picture of God dwelling with man in relationship and what that's to look like. It's a picture and model of Eden. Chapters 25 through 31 here in the book of Exodus are structured around those first few words that we had just read. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses. That exact phrase is used exactly seven times in this section. The first time is in the one that we just read, and the seventh is found in chapter 31, verse 12, where it says, Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am Yahweh who makes you holy. Now, can you think of anything else in the Bible where there's a set of seven and on the seventh there is a Sabbath and Yahweh making holy? If you guess creation, you are correct. The tabernacle is patterned after God's plan for creation. So we should expect to see parallels throughout this to the creation week, to the Garden of Eden. You'll notice throughout these instructions for the tabernacle that the theological significance for the furniture, like the ark and the table with the bread of the presence and the golden lampstands, aren't explained. They're just told how to build them, but they don't explain what they stood for. Well, why isn't the significance of the tabernacle and the furniture in it explained? It's because it doesn't need to be explained. And why didn't anybody explain to the person who drove them here this morning the significance of those white lines and dashes on the road? Or what that big red hexagon with the letters S-T-O-P means? Because it doesn't need to be explained. People already understand the significance of those things because they're used to them. When people heard the tabernacle instructions, they immediately knew this is Eden. This is the place where God dwells with man. This is telling us that the relationship that was lost in Eden can be regained. We can have that kind of relationship with God again. God is planning to reconnect our relationship back to him like it was back then. And so we're positioned by Moses writing these things for parallels into the creation week, which he also wrote about. 
chapter 25 here specifically connects to day one in creation where we know that God speaks of light and darkness on day one. You're going to see that in these things here in chapter 25. We see this in the ark, which represents God's presence. We see this in the table where the bread of the presence was placed. And we see this especially in the lampstand, which was a light in the darkness. It was a lampstand of pure gold, which gives light, and it's shaped like a tree, which just so happens to have two sets of three on it, like creation week, where God formed in three days, and then in the next three days, he would fill something. The ark is the first thing that we're going to give some consideration to, which was a representation of God's presence. This is where the light of God's glory would be. If you look at Exodus 25, verses 10 to 11, God's word reads, And they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it, and you shall make a gold molding around it. Well, why gold? Well, gold reminded people of Eden, the place where the gold in that land was good. It's a representative piece of the light of God's glory being reflected in his creation. But as we know, man sinned and he fell short of reflecting the glory of God and needs to be restored to him somehow. So how does that restoration and being in and reflecting God's presence work itself out? Well, you see that in Exodus 25, 17, where it says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. The mercy seat is the thing that, that tells you how you can be restored to holy God. Bible translator William Tyndale gave us two new words in our English language from the one Hebrew word that's translated here, mercy seat. Tyndale translated this word another way, also by another word he invented, which was atonement. Which he took the, the words at one meant, because he said the, you know, the concept of this word is having to deal with how somebody can be at one with holy God. How can a sinful man be at one with holy God? Well, it's by his mercy. So we should call it a mercy seat or a mercy throne. It's only if he's merciful to you that you can have this relationship. And he happens to reign on a throne of mercy. This was an early teaching about the God who would become man and give his life as a ransom for many. Would give his life as a substitute atonement to restore people back into the presence of God. This furniture and the tabernacle pointed forward to the need and promise of Jesus Christ whose blood was poured out for many who entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood to mercifully obtain eternal redemption. And this mercy throne was surrounded by cherubim. These were the throne guardians. These were the angels who made up the angel army that guarded God's presence in Eden with 
flaming sword and functioned as a keep out sign, which communicated because of your sin, you can't come in to God's presence. These angels were guardians of that which was sacred. They were the throne attendants of God and being in his presence. And so this presents a tension here and that God wants to dwell with man, but for man to be able to dwell in God's ark presence, he needs mercy seat atonement. Now listen to these words in 25:22. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all which I will command you for the sons of Israel. Now, you learn later in Scripture that it was only the high priest of Israel who could approach the mercy seat once a year on a holiday called Yom Kippur, known as the Day of Atonement. And they would approach between the two cherubim, which were upon the Ark of Testimony. Well, what was it that the Ark testified to? It was the testimony of what? Well, the Ark is the testimony that points to the reality that you need atonement in order to have a relationship with God. You could think of it as an early form of a, a gospel tract where the ark was communicating that God wants to dwell with man, but the mercy seat is showing that man is sinful and needs atonement in order to be able to dwell with God again. And all of this is a testimony that you need to learn about God's holiness man's sinfulness, and that you need a God-man mediator, which he will indeed provide. He will, in time, provide the substitute that you need. Few people in Israel would ever see this ark or even the things that were placed inside the tabernacle. The ark itself would be wrapped with a blue covering and carried by poles as Israel would travel about, they couldn't see it or touch it and live. You could think of it this way. They were to believe by faith and not by sight that these things existed and were real. They were to trust the God who they couldn't see and couldn't touch. Same with all of the items that would be placed inside of the ark, which were Aaron's rod, some of the manna from the wilderness, and the ten words. Aaron's rod would be a reminder that God protects his people. The manna would be a reminder that God provides for his people. And the ten words are a reminder that God guides his people. The testimony is that God protects, provides, and guides. And as we know from Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please him for he who draws near to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Another piece of furniture placed inside the tabernacle that we read about is this table in verse 23, this table which represents God's presence and his provision. If you read with me beginning in verse 23, Scripture reads, you shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long and one cubit wide and one and a half cubits high. 
You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a gold border around it. Now, in some religions of the contemporary day of the Israelites, such tables were built in order to feed their gods or in order to appease them somehow. But this table was different. It wasn't that their God needed to be provided for, but it was a reminder that their God provides for them. There's only one God, and it's this one true God who provides everything that's needed for life in Him. He doesn't need anything, but everything needs Him. This was a table that communicated not only that God provides, but He is with His people. He is Emmanuel. Uh, he has come to make fellowship with him possible. God, as we see here at this table, is taught to be the present provider of his people, and that he comes to bless them with fellowship with him and with one another. We see that especially in verse 30, where it says, You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. The table points to God's presence to provide bread from heaven at a table where it's shared together in fellowship, uh, more specifically to provide needed atonement from heaven for sinful man. God didn't send a law by which men could save themselves, but he sent an atonement to save them. He didn't just send them instructions on this is how you guys could save yourselves. But instead, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be a propitiation for our sins, to be a satisfactory sacrifice for our sins. He didn't simply send us out to do some work in order to earn a seat at the table because we went out and earned the bread to put on the table for the Lord who needed it. But instead, God provides the bread, the table, the fellowship, and everything that you need to be reconciled to him in Jesus Christ. We read about bread from heaven in John chapter 6, and Jesus preaching the significance of this bread being about himself, where Jesus answered some people and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What should we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses has not given you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that 
You have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The next piece of furniture that we come across in the tabernacle is the lampstand, which was a reminder of God's permanent presence. It was a lampstand to burn continually and of God's guiding presence. Here in the lampstand, we see the the tree of life and the pillar of fire combined together. I'm going to begin reading from Exodus 25, verse 31. Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand, its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work. Its cups, its bulbs, and its flowers shall be of the same piece. Six branches shall go out from its sides, three branches of the lampstand from its one side, and three branches of the lampstand from its other side. Three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms in the one branch, a bulb and a flower, and three cups shaped like almond blossoms in the other branch, a bulb and a flower. So for the six branches going out from the lampstand, and in the lampstand, four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers, and a bulb shall be under the first pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the third pair of branches coming out of it, for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. Their bulbs and their branches shall be of the same piece. All of it shall be one piece of hammered work of pure gold. Then you shall make its lamps seven in number, and they shall mount its lamps so as to shed light on the space in front of it, and its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made from a talent of pure gold with all these utensils, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain." A lampstand of pure gold here was made to reflect the glory of God. It was yet another reminder that there is no darkness in him. God is not only present, but he intends to provide a permanent presence to his people, a light that is never snuffed out. He is to provide a presence also that guides his people in how to walk in him, a lamp unto your feet to walk with him, permanent provision and guidance. He gives life and he guides life. This light was continually to shine to show that God's presence is never to leave you or even to fade. And in relation to day one of creation, this is communicated that this is the God who separates the light from the darkness. He can take you out of darkness and place you to where you're in his light only. It pointed forward to the realities of Jesus who said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light 
of life. All of this is pointing to the reality that God will dwell with his people like in the garden. But you need atonement in order to have that kind of relationship with him. The almond blossoms, the bulbs, the flowers, all of these things reminded yet again of the Garden of Eden and pointed to the reality of what relationship with God and man was like then. It was an abiding personal presence with God. But what's being shown here is that kind of relationship is available and possible. It can happen again. We also read in verse 37 that you shall make its lamps seven. Well, why seven? Well, again, this corresponds to creation. That's a reminder that God is creator, that he's provider, that he's sustainer and the one who guides everything in his creation. And this was evident not only in the bread on the table, but the oil that was used to fuel the lamps. Now, bread and olives were you know, the two major agricultural staples in Israel's life. And these two staples in their diet and life were continual reminders that God is present and provides for you. Well, how do you know that? Bread, olive oil. God provided the olive trees from which you could make the olive oil to fuel the lampstand so that they could keep burning and remind you that God provides personally and continually. We're reminded of these sort of truths in a similar way and simply when we sit down to have a meal with our family or others and we give thanks to the God who has provided those things for us to sustain us. Chapter 26 goes on to parallel day two in creation in which sky and sea was formed. Chapter 26 begins with this verse. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet material. You shall make them with cherubim, the work of a skillful designer. Well, why ten curtains? Well, this reminds us of all the way back in the beginning of Genesis when God said ten times. God said ten times, God said, is what you read there in Genesis 1. And it was so. It was a reminder that God made everything, and everything is made by his word and is to exist according to his word. And why do you think in relation to day two in creation to sky and sea that they were to make things that were blue, purple, and scarlet? Because these are sky colors. And yes, there is gold. In Exodus 26, 6, it says, You shall make 50 clasps of gold, and you shall join the curtains to one another with a clasp so that the tabernacle will be a unit. Well, what is this? convey when all brought together, the gold and the sky colors. Well, it's the idea that God's glory is to be reflected from the sky over his entire creation. These curtains were like an early form of Psalm 19, which reads, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. 
and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's gold everywhere inside of the tabernacle to teach that God's glory is to fill everything, absolutely everything in his creation. He desires to have this tabernacle kind of presence not just in one place, but in the whole world throughout the entire creation. He wants his image to be reflected in relationship to him like an Eden, but bigger and all-consuming throughout all of creation and not just in one place. When you continue on in chapter 26 to verse 30, you begin there a parallel into day three in creation where God formed the land. Starting in verse 30 there, the word of God reads, Then you shall erect the tabernacle, According to its plan, which you have been shown in the mountain, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful designer. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, their hooks also being of gold on four bases of silver. Now, the tabernacle is not merely and simply patterned after Eden, as you're discovering, but it's also a picture of all creation, what that place was like and what the whole place of the earth is to be like. It communicated God's desire and plan to be present with all of his creation, all of the world, all of the land. And in the first three days of creation, God formed everything that he would then fill in the next three days. After he formed the skies and the waters and the land, he then filled them with creatures in relationship to himself. And what happens here in this text is presented by Moses as he leaves us off in the tabernacle, instructions being paralleled with only the first three days of creation where God formed everything, which leaves this anticipation of, well, when is God going to fill this stuff? Such is a pattern that goes throughout Scripture, where God forms things and then fills them later, such as forming a new people in order to fill them and live in them as little mobile temples, or to later to form a new heavens and a new earth in order to fill them and reside there eternally. But between this place and that place, there is a veil that exists between these two lands. And guarding cherubim designed into them hung on gold pillars. Here in this veil that we read about in this section of scripture, something could be seen of what Adam saw when he tried to peer back into the land of Eden with this cherubim army guarding it while he was now not in that land, but east of that land in another land. It was all veiled. And the veil's purpose was to show that there is a separation between man and God. But even so, it was a, this veil was a beautiful, dominating partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. It preached the cherubim's sermon, because of sin, you can't come in. 
It points out the reality that God is holy and you're not, and that's the reason that you're outside. But these things would change when Jesus would come and tear the veil, as we read in Matthew 27, 51, that after the crucifixion of Jesus, when he cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, behold, the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. Well, why did this happen? Why was the separation between God and man torn down from top to bottom? To show all of those things that were constructed within that system of worship was to point to the one who does that. And that it's not a from the bottom up sort of work, but it's the God-man coming down to man, from the top to the bottom to reconcile sinful man back to holy God. Jesus tore the veil down that said, because of your sin, you can't come in, and replaced it with his blood, which says, because of him, you can come in. Hebrews chapter 10 ties into this reality where the author writes, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. God's plan for his creation, as we've been seeing, is taught through the tabernacle. God wants his glory to fill the whole earth, sky and land. He wants his golden glory to be reflected to the ends of the earth. But there's a problem for sinful man. You're separated from that. So chapter 27 communicates this idea that even though Israel was separated, there's this strange tension in which they were invited to worship God. So they're separated from him, but they're invited to come and worship him and to use things like an altar to worship him. What you read about in chapter 27, starting in the first verse, it says, And you shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners, its horns shall be of the same piece, and you shall overlay it with what? What do you think it's going to be overlaid with? If you said gold, you're wrong, and I tricked you. But if you said bronze, you were following with me in your Bible. <laughs> Those sinners are separated from holy God. They were invited to worship God by building an altar that was covered with bronze. Which raises the question, well, why, why bronze for something that's outside of the place that's all gold? Why bronze and not gold like all the stuff inside of the tabernacle? Well, in the court of the tabernacle, things were only made of either bronze or silver. Nothing was made of gold. And this was to communicate that everything that's outside of the tabernacle isn't as it should be. Everything that's outside of the tabernacle doesn't purely, cleanly reflect God's glory. 
And so there's a tension here. You know that from the tabernacle, God's glory is supposed to fill the whole earth, but you're separated from him. But at the same time, you're invited to participate to show that this relationship with God isn't lost, that it can be regained. So Israel, though unholy, is invited to participate in worshiping Yahweh. But you see that in those, the last two verses, chapter 27, verses 20 and 21. It says, and you shall command the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil of beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. In the tent of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall keep it in order from evening to morning before Yahweh. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout their generations for the sons of Israel. I think these realities here teach us at least five truths. One of them is that Israel is not cut off. The relationship that God has promised to have with them through Abraham continues. God is going to build a nation for his name that will be a blessing to all other nations. That must continue because God promised that it would be so. And this relationship, as we have seen Throughout Exodus over and over, it continues not because of Israel's performance, but because of God's promise. Second truth we learn is that this, this is something that reminded Israel of their role. You think about the tabernacle again, it was a, a microcosm of the world. You know, it was a little pattern that was to remind you of uh, the entire universe and how you should think about it. And the Within the world, Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. And so as they would act out their worship, the, the priest would stand between the courtyard and the holy place. They were a mediator of God's presence that would mediate and demonstrate some sort of teaching about how man can be reconciled to God. They were mediators to lead an unholy people into the courtyard and then represent them into the holy place. Now, the Levitical priest would do that for Israel, but then Israel in turn was to do that for the whole world. They weren't merely to exist in and of themselves, but to be a blessing to all nations. Third truth that we learn is that Israel is just like the world and needs the same atonement. As you keep reading about Israel, you learn over and over they are unholy. They are like everybody else around them. They are like the other nations. They're separated from the one true God, just like everybody else. And they need the one saving atonement that everybody needs if they would be reconciled to the God of creation. A fourth truth we learn is that there is hope for a reconciled relationship with God. There is hope for a reconciled relationship with God. There is a God who chooses to tabernacle among a people. This word tabernacle, is, this is what it means. It means dwelling place. There's a God who chooses to dwell among a people, uh, not just to be at a distance from them, but to be with them, in the midst of them. There is a tabernacle that comes down that will eventually take over everything as tabernacle. The grace and truth of tabernacle worship is 
seen in Jesus' two comings. You think about how in Jesus' first coming, we read in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's our word tabernacle there. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. Now, we beheld everything that that pure gold was to reflect in the tabernacle. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in Jesus' second coming, we read of these realities in Revelation 21.3, where it refers to Jesus this way. It says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Now, everything in the tabernacle is pointing forward to Jesus who is the tabernacle. The same Lord who dwelt in visible glory in the tabernacle among Israel is going to come again to dwell in glory among all his saints forever. Fifth truth that we learn from these realities is that there is a separation between God and man, but there is a priest who can guide you in and make the unholy holy. It's a really long point, I know. And I'll, I'll say it one more time. There is separation between God and man, but there is a priest who can guide you in and make the unholy holy. We read about that and about Aaron and his sons who would keep all of these instructions as a perpetual statute throughout the generations of the sons of Israel. And all of this was to help Israel to understand their role as a kingdom of priests. It wasn't that some of them were to be priests. All of them were to be a kingdom of priests. All of them were to be mediators of the presence of God to the entire planet. Every single one of them was to worship in spirit and truth and be like the woman at the well that we read about later in John 4.29, who after talking to Jesus about worship and relationship said come see a man who told me all the things that I have done is this not the Christ for us today as we think back on this ancient sanctuary we're not separate from that sanctuary but scripture speaks of us being that sanctuary we are the place that God has come to dwell for him to make it that place of pure gold that reflects his glory in the world to show what he is like. That he dwells in us to disciple us and to put us on mission of being evangelists for the sake of his name. As it says in Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And see, God's sanctuary is his church it's his people it's not just you as an individual but you in connection with everybody else who is 
put up against the standard of the cornerstone of Christ. God's presence is in us and building us, and we are stones that are used to build up one another. We are a living building, a a mobile structure moving throughout the earth to mediate the presence of God and his glory to others that they might come in and know him who would dwell within them and make them pure. The tabernacle is about worship and relationship, just like taking communion together is about worship and relationship. And it's at this point that we are going to to share in worshiping our Lord and the relationship we have to him and one another, that we've been reconciled to Christ and to one another. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for the reminder of what you did on that cross on Calvary for the salvation of our souls. We're also reminded that you didn't come only once, but you're coming again for those of us who are eagerly awaiting for you. And because of these realities that you have taught us and set before us today, we worship you as the coming King. Amen.